Welcome to Album Divers. This is a podcast created by two music lovers who still remember listening to albums from start to finish the way the artists intended. We give history, track-by-track analysis, and delve into the music lyrics of some of the best albums of the past and today. Thanks for joining us. Let's dive in. Welcome to Album Divers. I'm Trevor. And I'm Shane. On this podcast, we take turns choosing albums to discuss and review. We alternate between an album that was released this calendar year and one that's been around a while. All right, Trevor, I know you've been excited to do this one. Why don't you share which album we'll be reviewing today? All right, today we'll be discussing the queen of art pop herself. This is Kate Bush and her groundbreaking album, 1985's Hounds of Love. Man, I'm, I'm glad you picked this album. This is an artist that I, I hate to admit it, but I was not familiar with, and I had no idea what to expect. You told me it was a mid-'80s album, so I had some preconceived notions, but those were definitely squashed right away. Good pick. I enjoyed it. I was excited to share this one with you, especially setting it up with not a lot of background and just saying, hey, I've got an 80s female pop artist to throw at you for this album pick. And didn't tell you much else besides that. I think your words to me were, I don't know what I was expecting, but it wasn't that, I think yeah. is what you said. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and there were, there were definitely times when I was going through and I, I texted you like, whoa, you know, like I, I never saw that one coming. What, what was that all about? <laughs> uh, right. Even like moments where I was like, that was, that was kind of scary. That was a little dark. She takes it in a lot of different directions. Um, Kate Bush is amazing, I, I think. This is one I've been really excited to record with you, and I'm really glad that you hadn't heard of her in a way, because this is something that's really fun to share with somebody for the first time. Well, I know you did a lot of research on Kate's history, her upbringing, some of the important events surrounding this album and her musical career. So let's get into some of that. Why don't you share a little background? So I'm going to be as brief as I can with it so we can talk mostly about the album itself. But I did want to bring give you a little bit of history of Kate. But before that, I wanted to give a little history on what art pop is as a definition. Art pop, in terms of its musical influence, has its origins in the mid-60s with some names that we've already covered, actually, in our Pet Sounds episode with Phil Spector and Brian Wilson and, of course, subsequently the Beatles themselves after that. And it's continued as a genre and taken a lot of forms over the decades since then, but it's always blended elements of popular music with cultural and literary reference. In England, art pop musicians were drawing influence from art school studies, while in America the influence was largely drawn from Andy Warhol and the affiliated band The Velvet Underground, and also then intersected with the folk musicians of that time and the movement of the 60s. 
And then going into the 70s, that style manifested in the glam rock era with artists like David Bowie and Roxy Music leading the way. And then in the late 70s and the 80s, the post-punk and British New Romantic, as well as the synth-pop styles emerged. These manifestations rejected conventional rock instrumentation and structure in favor of dance styles and the synthesizer, which we'll talk a lot about when we talk about Kate Bush. So with Kate Bush herself getting her start in England in the late 70s and for us covering her 1985 album Hounds of Love, we see her combining a lot of these characteristics with a unique blend of the organic and the synthesized sound. Kate does a really good job strategically in this album in terms of the placement of when she uses a more organic sound and a more synthetic sound to fit the feel and narrative of some of these songs that we'll talk about. But Kate herself was born just before all of this in 1958 in Kent, England, to an English doctor and an Irish staff nurse. She's the youngest of three children with her two older brothers, John and Patty. Though her parents were in the medical field, she does come from an artistic family. Her mother, Hannah, was an amateur traditional Irish dancer, and this is something that she will eventually integrate herself into her musical influence and music videos. Her father was an amateur pianist. And then her brother Patty made musical instruments, and John was a poet and a photographer. Both her brothers were involved in the local folk music scene. And she remembers her brother's interest in pop music sparking curiosity in her with bands like Pink Floyd, King Crimson, and Fleetwood Mac being popular albums in her home that sparked interest of hers. Her family's musical influence inspired Kate to teach herself to play piano at the age of just 11 years old. There was an organ in the barn behind her parents' house, and she would play and also studied violin. And it wasn't long before she began composing her own songs and lyrics at the age of 11 or 12. And by the time she was 16, she had over 50 compositions of which her parents produced a demo tape. I wonder if those were recorded in the barn. I think they might have been, actually. Yeah. What, kind of, what kind of acoustics do you think you'd have in there? Maybe some hay bales to dampen the it's sound? It's funny that you, you bring that up because... We'll talk about it a little bit later, but this album, she actually turned the barn into a recording studio for Hounds of Love. Oh, nice. So the barn became uh, cool. official. It may not have been quite that good from an acoustic standpoint back then, but... Surprised we didn't get some animal sounds like on, on pet sounds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, by mistake or, or intention, yeah. Yeah, cow in the background or something. <laughs> <laughs> so with this demo tape being produced, at first, most local record labels were showing very little interest. Fortunately, however, the Bush family shared a friendship with a man named Ricky Hopper, who also happened to be friends with Pink Floyd guitarist David Gilmour. And Ricky was able to convince David Gilmour to give Kate's music a listen. And when Gilmour listened to the demo, he was immediately impressed. He helped the 16-year-old Bush produce a more professional demo tape of three tracks personally recorded and funded by him. It wasn't long before this demo made its way into the hands of EMI Records executives, and she was signed at just 16 years old. After the signing, Kate was put on a two-year retainer by the managing director of EMI because he felt that if the album failed, it would be demoralizing to such a young artist. But if it was successful, she wouldn't be able to handle that either. So either way, they thought, all right, she just needs to sit on the back burner for a little while. Regardless, she was given a large advance of money from EMI, which she used to fund not her records, but for enrollment in an interpretive dance class taught by Lindsay Camp, who was a former teacher of David Bowie. 
And she also used these two years to compile almost 200 songs. And she fronted a band called the K.T. Bush Band in early 1977. She began recording her first album, The Kick Inside, in August of that same year. And she finished it just six months later in 1978 when she was only 19 years old. That's amazing. She wrote that many songs before she was even 20 years old. It's, it is amazing. And, and some of those songs that ended up on that first album, Kick Inside, she would have written when she was only 13. Wow. And I find it interesting, all of these iconic artists that we've covered so far and some that haven't made it on the podcast yet that we've talked about often have some story where they were discovered in some random way where all the cards had to fall into place or maybe it was one connection like we see here with with Kate Bush had she not had that family friend Ricky Hopper was able to connect them with Pink Floyd guitarist David Gilmore who was already popular who said this girl's special she has talent we need to pursue this maybe she would have never gotten the attention because back then you couldn't put your stuff out to the world as easily as you can today and know that somebody will pick you up if you're good enough the cards had to fall into place Luckily, it did. Luckily, she was discovered at such an early age because obviously she's had a huge influence on on music in general and so many great artists that we have today because of her, you know, because of her inspirations. Definitely. And it's definitely been a theme as we've been diving into these albums where you look back at the way all the cards fell and it seems like this amazing serendipitous moment that brought all these things together that how could this have happened? I imagine... In retrospect, it's easy to see those things as magical things that fell into place. Yeah, and sure. reality yeah. is it's probably a little bit of both, right? I mean, I like that phrase that success is a combination of luck and opportunity. Mm-hmm. And for Kate, you kind of like yep. to think she's she's got such a skill level and, and so much talent that somehow it would have come into place. But you never know. The, the flip side of that is there's a lot of really talented people that never get a chance. And that might be just as true. Yeah, definitely. I'm really glad that Kate got her chance. After that first album was created, EMI had their sights on a more rock-oriented song on the album for the first single. But Kate insisted that the more art-pop track called Wuthering Heights, with its acrobatic and almost banshee-sounding vocals, be chosen instead. This now famous song was inspired by the 1847 Emily Bronte novel of the same name. Kate wrote the song at age 18, within just a few hours after seeing the 1967 BBC adaptation of the novel. The odd vocals that you hear in that song were inspired by the character in the novel and the film that at the time of the scene that inspired the song was supposed to be a ghost. So vocal performance was subject to the character for her. But as a side note, this wasn't completely out of sync with her natural voice at the time. In fact, as a child, she trained at a karate club where her brother John was an instructor, and there she became known as E.E. because of the squeaky kaya that she would make when doing karate moves. And when I read that, I immediately thought of Kate personifying this ghost in Wuthering Heights. Wuthering Heights became an international hit. Kate became the first British woman to reach number one in the UK charts with a self-written song. She was also the first female artist in pop history to have written every track on a million-selling debut album. The song stayed at number one in the UK singles chart for four weeks, and to this day it remains Kate's most successful single. 
The song received widespread critical acclaim and continues to be so highly regarded that in 2016, Pitchfork named it the fifth greatest song of the 1970s. After the Kick Inside success, EMI convinced her to do a quick follow-up to capitalize on her fame, and the sophomore effort was called Lionheart, released in November of that same year. It was, in Kate's opinion, rushed, and it didn't fare quite as well as her first album. After that, she set out on a tour that was titled The Tour of Life that ran for six weeks in May of 1979 and featured elaborate choreography, which she was heavily involved in creating. Costume changes, lighting, stage props. She was also the first artist to use a headset and wireless microphone built in. So Britney Spears can thank Kate Bush (laughs) for that. It was a self-made construction with uh, wire clothes hangers. The tour was, in Kate's words, enormously enjoyable, but absolutely exhausting. Due to this exhaustion, speculation, though not confirmation, of Kate's fear of flying, and perhaps most noteworthy, the tragic death of her lighting director during a 1979 tour, she wouldn't perform live again until 2014. And this time she did the show in what's called a residency, where there, there are several shows in one location. So going from 1979 to 2014 without being able to see Kate live on stage. I wish I would have known that and made an effort to go see her in 2014, because who knows if she'll ever do that again. After Lionheart, Kate Bush released her third album called Never Forever in 1980 with the hit Babushka. This was also the first time Kate would use an instrument called the Fairlight Digital Synthesizer, which was conceived the prior year and Kate had been introduced to by Peter Gabriel while singing backup for his third album. Her fourth album, The Dreaming, released in 1982, was produced entirely by herself and is known for its experimentation and furthering of her use of the Fairlight. It received mixed reception in the UK due to it being less accessible. Kate called it her She's Gone Mad album. Despite it being less positively received, Kate was very proud of it, and diehard Kate Bush fans often cite this as their favorite album. So if you thought Hounds of Love was a little bit crazy, you'll have to go back and listen to The Dreaming. Yeah, I need to. So this brings us to Kate's fifth album and the one we're talking about today, Hounds of Love. This was released in September of 1985. For this album, to avoid the high cost of the studio time, she built a private studio in the barn, as we referenced earlier, behind her family home so she could work at her own pace. Hounds of Love once again did very well, especially in the UK, fittingly knocking America's most popular mainstream 80s pop star, Madonna, off the number one position with her album, Like a Virgin. The album art features Kate lying on the ground, snuggling with two dogs in pink and purple sepia tone, taken, of course, by her brother and photographer, John Carter Bush. The album does a great job of taking advantage of the vinyl format of an album, so something really good, I think, for our show. It features two very distinct sides. Side one is called Hounds of Love, and it has five more accessible pop songs, four of which became singles, including a track called Hounds of Love. So if you're keeping track, side A of this album is called Hounds of Love. The album itself is called Hounds of Love, and there is a song on side A called Hounds of Love. So we'll try to keep all that straight as we go. (laughs) The second side of the album is called The Ninth Wave, and it takes its name from a poem by, by Alfred Tennyson, and it's a concept album about a woman lost at sea, and it's made up of seven tracks, so a total of 12 tracks on the album as a whole. The album, as we mentioned, uses that Fairlight synthesizer, 
It also has piano, traditional Irish instruments, and layered vocals. Kate also takes segments from a traditional Gregorian song, samples from popular movies, and recorded speaking voices of friends and family throughout the album, as we'll discuss. Hounds of Love was also Bush's breakthrough into the American charts with the song Running Up That Hill making its way to the top 40 charts. This album is considered by many fans and critics to be her best. It's also regularly considered one of the greatest albums of all time. Last year, Rolling Stone magazine ranked it number 68, and Pitchfork included it at number 4 on their list of the 200 best albums of the 1980s. In a poll of the public conducted by NPR, it was voted the fourth greatest album ever made by a female artist. As far as personnel, the album features, of course, Kate Bush on vocals and the Fairlight synthesizer, as well as piano, and 22 other contributions from various instruments and voices. After Hounds of Love, Kate has gone on to create five more studio albums, the most recent of which was 2011's 50 Words for Snow. Her music is described as eclectic, experimental, and surreal, often defines categorization. She draws from various periods and cultures, and her music has always differed from pop norms from the beginning and her first single, Wuthering Heights. Art and literature play a huge role in her inspiration for songs, as we've already mentioned, and as we'll see more of in this album, we get into the track by track. Beyond her own art, Kate's music has influenced many of today's stars, including Regina Spector, Ellie Goulding, Katie Lan, Paula Cole, one of my personal favorites, Bat for Lashes, Grimes, Bjork, Florence Welch of Florence and the Machine, Dido, St. Vincent, even Big Boy of Outkast and Adele, just to name a few. This year, she's on a short list of artists nominated for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame that will be announced in just a few short months. And I'm so excited to talk about this album with you and to be able to introduce Kate Bush to you, Shane. I mentioned when we selected this album, I wouldn't be surprised if dozens of artists that you listened to were influenced by Kate Bush. And it only took me a click or two to confirm that a lot of the artists that you had selected from last year's Best Of, I think you had three out of your five were female musicians, and I think every single one of them had listed Kate Bush as an influence. Yeah, and some of those you you mentioned as well, extremely popular. I really like Regina Spector, and I remember listening to Paula Cole back in the 90s. She had that song, I Don't Want to Wait, that was really popular. That's right. And of course, Florence and the Machine is, is real popular nowadays, and Outcast as well. That's cool that, that she's even inspired across genres that maybe don't mesh with what she's singing about or the style. Yeah, yeah, not one that you would necessarily think right away would be an influence. It's really cool to hear that. Yeah. But, I mean, she's groundbreaking. This, this album's way ahead of her time, and she's always stretching to the furthest fibers of that definition of what pop music really is. Radical experimentation, lush landscapes, all those literary themes we talked about, the sampling, the theatrics. It doesn't surprise me that she continues to be discovered by new fans and inspire new artists today. Yeah, it's a very complex album, very dynamic. There's so much to it. So without further ado, let's get into it. Sounds good. The first track is called Running Up That Hill. And what a great opening track. I, I think the music really draws you in right away. Uh, that, that beat is really, you know, attention grabbing. It's a sound that if, if you're doing something and 
you hear that or that comes across, you, you stop what you're doing and you and you want to listen. You like the more you listen, you're kind of like, okay, this is cool. I gotta I gotta really pay attention. I gotta make sure I absorb this and keeps taking turns. There's new sounds. It's very unique. This one definitely does grab your attention right away. The, those drum beats at the beginning are almost kind of tribal in a way. Mm-hmm. And the, yeah, the synth is really, really unique, but it's very tasteful. It, it doesn't overpower that. So that driving beat is what you notice the most. And I think you're right. It grabs your attention. It was a good leadoff track, I think, for this album. So what's this song all about? The message of this is really just a conversation between a couple or or it's the female counterpart of this couple wishing and talking to the the male that these two genders could trade places and feel what it's like for the other one to experience what they're feeling. Kate herself had said, I was trying to say that really a man and a woman can't understand each other because we are a man and a woman. And if we could actually swap each other's roles if we could actually be in each other's place for a while, I think we'd both be very surprised. And I think it would be led to a greater understanding. And really the only way I could think it could be done was either, you know, I thought a deal with the devil, and I thought, well, no, why not a deal with God? Because in a way, it's so much more powerful, the whole idea of asking God to make a deal with you. I like that thought of if you could switch places with somebody, what that would mean and and how that would help you understand them better and them understand you. Clearly she's saying it's about couples. So we think about genders and the differences between men and women trying to understand each other yet being very different, maybe in some context, some ways. But I like to think of that too, as something that we could apply to anything in life, any, any two people trying to understand each other better, whether they're different genders or same gender, come from different places, speak different languages, to be able to trade places for a day or a week and really understand them and then and then go back to yourself and see what kind of difference or how, how much that would speed up the process of truly understanding who they are and, and them, you, and uh, coming together. I really like this song. I, I think there's a lot to it for just a pop song. You said it really well, just the, the idea of being able to switch places and understand what somebody's going through is a unique idea to write a song about. I saw her interviewed by someone who had commented that this is a really negative song because it's about two people that can't communicate. And Kate was really quick to correct that. And she said, well, no, it's not. It's a positive song because the general tenor of this song is that they're trying to. It It's natural for people to not be able to communicate. Yeah, it's about two people who want to communicate so well that they wish there was a way that it, it could be easier or like that they could go deeper. Yeah, there's a positivity about it. There's there's love going on between these two. It's inevitable that we're not going to be able to always see eye to eye. Yeah, but the the fact they have that desire shows, I mean, that's like a demonstration of how much they care. Exactly. I think it's exemplified really well in the second verse of the song. It, it says, you don't want to hurt me, but see how deep the bullet lies. So that's the, the female protagonist talking to the male saying, I understand you don't mean to hurt me, but look how deep this bullet lies within me after you, you metaphorically are shooting at me here. But then she's understanding of his position. She's, she says right after that, unaware, I'm tearing you asunder. And in other words, she's acknowledging that she maybe doesn't understand that she's sometimes hurting him 
too. And I think that that's a really good way of summing up what Kate was trying to say in that interview about these are just two people that are trying to reach out and understand each other. It's not a it's not a negative. It's not complaining. It's it's acknowledging. Yeah, and if the other person feels the same way or acknowledges that, it's almost like a shared empathy where maybe people can be equally hurt unintentionally and both not desire that to happen and want to be better but not have the information needed or the the, the whereabouts to know how to do things differently. I had a question on the lyrics I was curious about. There's the part where it says... And if only I could make a deal with God, I'd get him to swap our places. I'd be running up that road. I'd be running up that hill. Well, the name of the song, and they keep repeating, I'd be running up that hill with no problems. Do you think she's saying that if there was a way to make a deal with God to switch places with somebody, that she would take off sprinting and, and run, run to God, run up that hill to God, to heaven, to to make this deal and have him grant the ability to switch places or is she saying that if God were to grant her that ability to switch places and she did switch places then after that she'd be able to run up that hill run up that road with no problems as a as a metaphor a way of saying we'd be able to tackle these these differences between us if I understood you better and you understood me then we would take off running then we'd be able to make it up that hill we'd be able to make it to the top because we would understand each other if we had that uh, added knowledge of you know what the other person's experiencing yeah i think it's that second one i think it's basically saying if i had that ability all limitations would be off the table and i think it's exemplified in those words you read each of those things is a little bit more challenging uh, first yeah. running up the road right okay that's that could be flat yeah run up the hill that's a little bit more elevated and then sure, yeah. running up a building is is like impossible so right, it's basically yeah. saying like i'd be able to do all these amazing things and it's so outside of yeah. what's possible that I'd be able to run up a building. Even. I didn't pick it's, up it's on a, that. Yeah, a, that, that's pretty cool. Well, yeah, I mean, that that goes back to the initial message we were talking about, that somebody desires to know somebody else so much, and they also know that with that knowledge, if they could step inside somebody's shoes and thoughts for a day or so, then they would be able to do things that in real life seem impossible, like running up the side of a building. I mean, like you would just have superpowers from a communication understanding standpoint. This song was actually originally called Deal With God, but they were told that this title wouldn't be played in any of the religious countries. So like Italy and France and Australia wouldn't play it. Ireland wouldn't play it. And to Kate, that generally meant that they would be basically blacked out just because it has the word God in the title. And even though she liked that title, Deal With God, I think she realized that it's more important to make sure this song is heard. But she did mention that she always felt like she compromised it a little bit. Yeah, I read that. That was one of her regrets that she succumbed to the, the pressure of mainstream society or the fame or success or whatever instead of staying true to what she really wanted to do. The fact that that was important to her to emphasize that, I was thinking about that in, in through that lens and that part at 305 when the drum moves from that steady beat to those more startling accents mm -hmm. 
It almost sounded like a clap of thunder, like God had suddenly granted that wish, and then right after that, those those words, let's exchange the experience. As if maybe that happened. And then it's after that, that that phrase, with no problems. Mm -hmm. And then I think I'm probably reading a little bit too far into it, but at the very end on the outro when she's saying, if I only could be running up that hill, if I only could be running up that hill, it's blended with sort of a synthesized lower voice that almost sounds like a male voice on top of hers. Mm-hmm. And so it feels like maybe that got all mucked up and, and it, you're not sure who, who's who anymore. And so I interpret it almost, was it a deal with God or a deal with the devil that happened by the end of that? Yeah, so in a way, that double at the end with that deep voice maybe could be a representation of making a deal with the devil. They're singing together. It kind of meshes almost like, you know, they're gelling or something, and it has that dark sound to it. Did you watch the music video that I sent you for this song? No, I haven't had a chance to check them out yet. I I see there's some out there, though. That's worth watching, too, because it's a dance sequence. We mentioned that she had taken that two years when she was on retaining right. between um, being signed in her first album to take dance lessons. And, and it shows in this music video, she's dancing with this male counterpart, similar to these lyrics. It's They're kind of bending around each other slowly, and it's almost like they're becoming entangled and you're losing track of where one person ends and the other one begins. And that concept of trading places or becoming the other person or understanding what the other person's feeling is kind of exemplified in their their dancing. Yeah, definitely great opening track. Let's move on to the second track. This is the title track, Hounds of Love. The title track starts off with the words, it's in the trees, it's coming. These lines are from the 1957 horror film, Night of the Demon, and they're spoken by actor Maurice Denham. The film appears to be an inspiration for Kate when writing this song. She compares the imagery of the demon appearing through the tree to a sense of fear waiting for love to attack her. This is an idea repeated later in the song. I mean, the overarching theme of this song is basically the narrator saying they want love, they know love is good for them, but they're afraid. So as she says over and over in the song in different ways, she says, take my shoes off and throw them in the lake, hold me down. Different verbiage like that to indicate that she knows that she wants this, but it's something she's too afraid to make movements toward herself to make happen. She says, I don't know what's good for me. The music video for this one, you'll have to watch too. This one was actually directed by Kate herself. And it was definitely very much inspired by Alfred Hitchcock's film, 39 Steps. And you can actually see Alfred Hitchcock featured in the music video as a little nod to his famous cameo appearances he makes in his movies. So if you watch the music video, you'll see Alfred Hitchcock walk across the screen. It's quick. I'll have to go check that out. It's always fun to watch old music videos before the cinematography of today. 
it's kind of like looking through black and white photos. It's it's a cool experience to appreciate what they were able to create with the limitations they had 20 years ago, 25 years ago. Yeah, wait, 35. Man, 35 I need years to work ago, on my math. Yeah. yeah, 35 years ago to see what they were able to create back then. It's always it's always fun. I liked that line about take my shoes off and throw them in the lake. What did you make yeah, of that? Yeah, I don't know. I was just about to say that. What was that all about? I'm not sure. Is that uh, some connection or foreshadowing to the the songs about the ice later on in the album? That's an interesting thought. Yeah, I don't know. I, I took it more to mean if if you were to, to walk on water or if you were to try to walk across the lake, you know, you could put one step in there, but if you still had one foot on the ground, that wouldn't be very risky. So, so take my shoes off and throw them in the lake and I'll be two steps on the water. As she says in the chorus is essentially saying, I'm not gonna be able to do it myself. I'm too scared. So do it for me. Just take my shoes off and throw them in the lake and then I'll mm. be two steps on the water. Then I'll, then I'll be where yeah. I know I need to be where love is supposed to take me. Yeah. And, and the shoes would float. So it would kind of be like, she's walking on water. Right. Right. <laughs> That's what I, I kind of yeah, envisioned okay. as well. Cool. I like that. I love that line too. We talked earlier that one of the artists that was really influenced by Kate Bush is Bjork. I don't know if you listen to very much Bjork, but she does a lot of that kind of growly, grunty sounds. And the way Kate Bush says, throw them in the lake, reminds me of something that Bjork might do. Yeah, for sure. What'd you make of the verse two with the fox? I took that one to be kind of a personification of her. The the dogs were oftentimes, if you're thinking of like hunters, hound dogs are going to be chasing a fox. And when she found the fox caught by the dogs, his heart was beating so fast. Similar to her, she's she's being hunted by love and it's scaring her, but she knows it's good for her. So when she was holding that fox and feeling its heartbeat, that was... I think a personification of herself in this situation, just being afraid of love. Let's move on to track three. Next song is called Big Sky. So the first two tracks of the album kind of set the stage for a young love, people trying to figure out what love is all about, understand each other, connect, communicate. And now this one, I feel like it adds to that even more with lines like, you never really understood me, you never really tried. Uh, to me, that that has a very immature vibe to it. You know, when people get into a fight or they're arguing and somebody says, you don't even understand me. Or, you've never even tried it just seems kind of like I, I don't know i mean there there's there's times in the first couple songs where you feel like maybe there is 
some maturity that they're beyond their years. They're really trying hard to understand each other, talking about if they could make a deal with God to switch places, how cool that would be to understand. And that's a pretty deep, you know, adult mature thought. But then on the last song, you know, comparing fear of the unknown, like a child afraid of the dark, being uncertain of love and just kind of being lost and confused. And now this one here saying, Oh, you don't even understand me. You've never even tried. It's, it's starting to come together that, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of turmoil, a lot of, a lot of thoughts, a lot of newness, a lot of, um, sorting through emotions and trying to figure stuff out. Yeah, I, I think that the narrator of this song sees themselves as somebody that's always constantly changing, just like the clouds. Yeah, I wrote that there's kind of like this identity crisis or formation time maybe that somebody is going through constantly changing, trying to figure out who they are, what they want, what they're doing. Yeah, I think she's kind of pleading with her lover to basically pay more attention. The first verse says, they look down at the ground missing, but I never go in now. So kind of her saying like, I'm always outside looking at the clouds and paying attention to all these changes. And this person that's supposed to love me isn't paying attention to all those little idiosyncrasies about who I am and all the changes that happen. So she's kind of pleading with him to look up at the clouds, notice all those little changes because... Right now, it may look like Ireland. She talks about in verse first, the cloud looks like Ireland, or later, it's Noah. Point being, like, all of these things in the clouds just happen for a moment. They're magical, but they're instantaneous, and it's a metaphor for who she is as well. Yeah, I like that. It's a cool way to paint the picture and think about those emotions and thoughts. I love those drums at that two-minute mark. Oh, yeah. Yeah, me too. I made a comment about that. I like how she puts little found sound in there, too. Of course, we'll talk about it more with other songs, but when she gets to that pause for the jets, and then you actually hear those jets fly over. It's kind of cool. It sort of puts you on that hill with her staring up at the clouds. I was wondering if that idea of wanting to look at the big sky was a, a metaphor for going for something big, having high expectations or dreams and desires, and that you know, going on the themes of the other songs of her talking to a boyfriend and wanting to, to understand him more and him to understand her and wanting um, to connect and figure things out. And then also maybe here, this is her plea to say, you don't understand me. I'm looking for something big. I'm looking up at the sky. I want and maybe she's just pouring her heart out about all these hopes and desires and wanting him to understand or meet her somewhere. Maybe he's the opposite and more easygoing or something, at least in her mind, that there's some sort of disconnect. Maybe that's why she feels like he doesn't understand her, but you know, maybe it's it's more her you know, not understanding herself or being very complicated and complex to the point that somebody couldn't understand it, but then it's still that immaturity of, well, why don't you understand me? Why aren't you trying? But the other person maybe is, and it's it's impossible because of that whole identity uh, crisis or formation. That's a good point. I actually didn't think about. I was really fixated on the metaphor of the clouds of all of being ever changing parts of who she is. But the song itself, I'm looking at the big sky, like almost like I'm I'm looking at the big picture. Like I I want to see this to its end, or I w- I want this to become something greater. 
I'm, I'm looking ahead to something beyond what you're looking at. You're not, you're not caring about what's really important, uh, maybe, is another way to say that. I'm looking at the big picture. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. That's the idea that I got with lines like, because it's changing in the big sky, it's changing in the big sky now, we're looking at the big sky, and that's where she then says, you never understood me, you never really tried. You know, it's almost like she's trying to convince him, this is where we're going, this is where we're headed. And maybe it's not... Um, life expectations or goals but more so her vision for their future together like that idea that we're going for something really great you know and she's the one pushing for it and thinking that maybe he doesn't totally understand why she feels that way or that he's not on the same page yeah and when i mentioned that kate pushed back on that interviewer that's mentioned that her first song was more negative saying, no, there's a positivity in it with running up that hill. They're, they're both trying. This one feels like maybe it is a little more negative and maybe she's given up on the relationship more so than the first one. You know, you never understood me. You didn't really try. I'm this way. You're that way. It doesn't really feel like there's quite as much of a push and pull for the two of them to try to understand each other. It seems like it's more just a commentary about who she is. Yeah, possibly. And then that line at the end of uh, the the fourth chorus where it says, tell me, sisters. I wonder what that's all about. Maybe she's uh, saying, um, you know, tell them or hear me out or uh, like my fellow sisters, you know, you know what I'm talking about. You know what this is all about. Kind of like he doesn't understand me. And maybe it's going back to the first song about the disconnect between men and women and thoughts and not being able to totally understand each other. And she's like, you know, this this guy just doesn't get it. Tell, tell him, tell me, you know, tell him sisters, like tell me I'm not crazy. Like tell me you go through this kind of stuff too. Yeah. I think, I think that you're exactly right mm-hmm. on that line. Actually that didn't stand out to me. I didn't think about that until you brought it up, but I think you're right. I think she's saying, can I get a confirmation? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Th- this is, this is something you've gone through too. Yeah. So I, I feel like all, all three of the first songs are kind of a build up to this, this moment, you know, they want to understand each other and they're trying and, and, uh, she's kind of getting short, you know, on her, on her fuse to, to wait for this guy to understand her, get on the same page and, you know, for them to take off and go to a place where she wants to be. Just seems like there's a little more tension in this song than the first two. I love the outro on this song. When all those voices come back in, rolling over like a great big cloud, Walking out in the big sky, just the yeah. that over and over again is such a cool outro as that fades away. Moving on to track four, we mentioned earlier this album has so many sounds that, you know, it's a really great listening experience, and this one is a great sample of that. It's titled, Mother Stands for Comfort.
Yeah, you're right. Lots of interesting sounds on this song. And if the first half of this album is supposed to be different songs about love, this song is really pushing the limits on what a love song could be about. Kate said of this song, the personality that sings this track is very unfeeling in a way, and the cold qualities of synth and machines were appropriate here. There are many different kinds of love, and the track's really talking about the love of a mother, and in this case, she's the mother of a murderer, in that she's basically prepared to protect her son against anything. Because in a way, it's also suggesting that the son is using the mother as much as the mother is protecting him. It's a bit of a strange matter, isn't it? And then she laughs. Yeah. I'd say that is a bit of a strange matter. <laughs> <laughs> you can hear her saying that in the British. Brit- a bit of a strange manner, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, a lot, of, a lot of times they do, they do trail off and say, "Isn't it? Isn't it?" You know, it's almost like an afterthought. A bit of a bit of a strange matter, isn't it? <laughs> right. Yeah. She's really fun to watch interviewed with, especially if it's an American doing the interviewing, because I mean, she's so intelligent too. But to have that accent sometimes the questions are almost cringeworthy compared to her answers in some of these interviews <laughs> she's definitely not afraid to to push the limits especially back then you know like i think when we were talking about this album you you had said early on that it's one of those that wasn't received super well when it was first released probably because it could have been taken to a bunch of producers at the time and a lot of them would have said wow you know whoa like what what's going on here what is this all about and they'd probably try to strip it down and change it and stuff. But over the years, it's one of those that's aged well and people have come to appreciate it more and more over time. But I think that's a testament to the fact that she had no intention of conforming to mainstream pop or um, sticking to only sounds and music and themes that would be digestible by everybody. She she wanted to push the limit and, and do her own thing. And this is this is one of those... You know, there's other ways that you probably could have gotten the same point across or constructed a song that had the same message um, that was a little bit easier uh, to digest. But like you said, it's kind of a stretch and there's some some strange elements uh, to this one. Definitely. And yeah, you mentioned all those sounds. I want to talk about those. The impression I got was almost like industrial steam type of sounds. And, and if you listen to this on headphones, the panning is really interesting. You can hear that on the left side, the right side gives a really cool expansive feeling. I imagine all of that's done with the Fairlight synthesizer. Yeah, it's it's a little trippy with the, you know, it almost can put you into a trance. If you got it turned up loud enough and you're kind of tired and you listen to that, it's, I don't know, it's very, rocking of the cradle in a sense with it just kind of going back and forth to fit the theme of yeah. mother stand for comfort stands for comfort yeah, yeah. rocking know. of the cradle i didn't yeah. think about that but yeah. but the way it just sort of it sort of sways and that i guess that's the pan panning a little bit from one side to the next but even the ups and downs of the music it just has a very good flow to it and that little sound that you made had kind of that a theremin like sound to it i, I was yeah. reminded yeah, of yeah. when we were talking about I just wasn't made for these times on the Beach Boys and how that they use that instrument that probably wasn't a theremin, but we talked about it being an instrument called an Andes Martinot, but a theremin-like instrument. And now here we are almost 20 years later, and she's probably doing that just in her homemade studio with that Fairlight instrument, which today even itself would seem really dated. It was very unique at the time. I think it was 
I think she, I mentioned she had used it on the Dreaming, but nonetheless, a pretty early stage of this instrument. And nowadays, everybody's got the tech, that kind of technology on their cell phone. But at the time, that was groundbreaking. She could create just about any sound that she wanted to. I imagine that that theremin-style sound is something that she used that for. I, I'm sure Brian Wilson wished he would have had that for all the work he put into that song. <laughs> You know, re- a weird subject matter to write about a mother kind of protecting her son who maybe has some sinister tendencies. And then I, I like that mother stands for comfort. Mother will stay mum. Kind of that double meaning of uh, my mother will always be my mother, but also she's going to keep quiet about the madman inside of me. Oh, really? You, th- you think there's a double meaning to mum? I think so. I think mother will... St- Mother will stay mum, mum meaning silent. Oh, really? Yeah. So mother, she will stay my mother, of course. Your mother will always be on your side. Hmm. Mother will stay mum, but she will stay quiet. She oh, will stay I didn't mum. think about that. I thought yeah. mum just meant mother in British. Isn't that what they call their mum? It is. Yep. But, but it has that double meaning of uh, she won't spill the secret, my secrets. She hmm. really wonder what would have inspired her to write a song like this and how she would think something up. It, this song almost feels more like a monologue in a play or something to me. Yeah, in a way it does. As you might imagine, this is the only song of these first five on the Hounds of Love or the side A that didn't make it as a single. You can't really hear this one probably being a radio hit, but nonetheless, it is a love song and it belonged on side A. Yeah, I think it fits. So definitely a very interesting song. But now let's move on to track five, the last song on the first half. This song is called Cloud Busting. So this song definitely does have a, a more of a catchy sound, and this song was released as the second single after Running Up That Hill in October of 1985. And this song definitely is pushing the boundaries of what a love song can be about and pulls in, as we talked about before, those literary elements that Kate Bush was really known for doing in her songs. This song is based on a book called A Book of Dreams, and it's a memoir by Peter Reich, written in 1973, about his father, Wilhelm Reich. Wilhelm Reich was one of Sigmund Freud's earliest students, and he had a lot of really interesting ideas. He had all of these theories about this organ energy, that organon that's mentioned at the beginning of the song is a research center that he lived at, was also his family home. But a lot of his views were controversial. He had interesting treatment methods, different inventions, these things called organ accumulators that were supposed to accumulate energy that you would sit on for up to like four hours at a time. But one of his most famous invention was called a cloud buster. It was designed by Reich claiming that it could produce rain by manipulating what he called that organ energy present in the atmosphere. 
And so Kate read this book by his son and was so inspired by it that she wanted to write a song from the perspective of the son. Kate said when the song was finished, she wrote to Peter Reich, and she said it was important to me in some way to have his sense of blessing because his book really moved me. He sent me back such a lovely letter. It was an incredible feeling of returning something that he had given to me. After listening to this whole album, I think this is my favorite song. I like the sound of it already, but just having that story that, honestly, we're just sort of giving a bird's eye view of. You could dive a lot deeper into the history of this memoir and the life of Wilhelm Reich. But I just think for her to read that book and be inspired by it, to communicate with the son that had written that memoir about this song and all the little pieces to it, and then the music video for this song. That's another one that I don't know if you got a chance to watch, but it's really interesting because Kate's dressed as like, she's got her hair cut really short, the video's got these rolling hills, and she's supposed to be like Peter in the song, like a little boy, the way that she's dressed. And then it's got Donald Sutherland playing her father, which is a famous actor of the time. So all of that stuff together, the story, the sound, the video, I just thought this was such an interesting song and really kind of summed up Kate Bush to me. So this was my favorite one on the album. This is one of my favorites too. It's it's not my favorite. That's coming up later. But it's up there. It's either second or third. I really like Running Up That Hill, the opening track as well. But the, the chorus, if you just zone in on that, like you said, this is a very in-depth song with some historical context. It's extremely creative to write a song and include all of all of that information that that you briefly touched on that if you're uh, a fan of this album I, I highly encourage you dig into that a little deeper and, and uh read up on wilhelm reich and and his whole whole past because it makes this song even more unique but aside from that i really like the chorus but every time it rains you're here in my head like the sun coming out Ooh, i just know that something good is going to happen i don't know when but just saying it could even make it happen. Just the idea of thinking things into into motion. Uh, you know, obviously, um, there's a sense of optimism in those lyrics and and the way she's she's singing. There's there's a there's a lot of energy, a lot of positive energy. Yeah, and that that last line of the chorus, but just saying it could even make it happen. If this is written from the perspective of the son Peter about his father, I think it's really interesting to think about how essentially his father's work, much of it was based on people believing and, and for something that maybe did or didn't have power, depending on maybe your opinions of Mr. Reich's inventions. For his son to at the end say, through Kate's eyes anyway, even saying it could even make it happen, it's maybe that belief in something is what makes it real. But I find that fascinating because it sounds like people challenged his device saying, clearly you're not harnessing energy. But if he's using that to assist people and they're walking away, 
saying that they feel like they were given some energy or it was helpful to them, whether placebo or not, who's to say that that wasn't real? Yeah, yeah, the definition of real becomes a little bit blurred here. I mean, you and I are, are physical therapists, so we can get into the weeds on the effect of placebo and, and the pros and cons of that, you know, really the power of it. We, of course, don't want to build our treatment around placebo, and, and we hope that there's tested research behind the majority of what we're doing, but to completely discount how somebody feels, you know, in our profession is is missing the mark as well. I mean, part of it is is the patient's experience, and for Wilhelm Reich, part of it was the experience that his patients had. I, I get the impression from, from reading that Wilhelm truly believed in what sure, he did. Sure, sure, yeah. And I would add to that that the big difference between what we do as physical therapists and the, the medical community that's grounded in a lot of science and hard evidence and objective information, although there are sometimes where there's that human experience, the emotional connection that has a positive effect in, in psychology and counseling and working with people and dealing with emotions, that that is the goal. That's that's the only goal. That's That's all you're doing. So it seems like you can look at any historical psychologist over the years, they've all been challenged by other people who have different ideas and views that what they're doing is not real. And it's hard to prove any of that stuff. You can do field studies, you can have outcome studies and show that one approach may work better than another approach, but it's it's really difficult to do sham counseling or have a control group for counseling. How do you How do you fake talking to somebody and research something like that? So to me, a lot of the research that I've looked at on psychology is kind of outcomes-based. So back then, they didn't have the science or technology to really study this stuff that well. So it kind of probably was his beliefs and the beliefs of his followers, the people coming to him versus big government or mainstream people who were saying, oh, this is far-fetched, this is crazy. But it was kind of just somebody's opinion versus another and who has the power and authority. So I find it kind of interesting. Like you said, he, he felt very strongly about it. So it's hard to say that somebody was being malicious about what they were trying to do because they genuinely felt that it was helping people and other people agreed and reported that it was. So who knows? Yeah, yeah. My favorite line in this song is in the pre-chorus where it says, you're like my yo-yo that glowed in the dark. What made it special made it dangerous. Yeah, I like that too. <laughs> so I bury it and forget. I was just reading over that again and thinking, man, I should, I should buy a yo-yo. Because I had one as a kid and I loved, <laughs> I loved playing with the yo-yo. I could do all these tricks and I'm thinking that might be fun. Don't get one with fluorescent light in it because this line is actually based on a real part of that memoir. In the memoir, Reich tells of his father Wilhelm's dislike of his fluorescent yo-yo because he said the light in it had bad orgon energy. Mm. So his father, the elder Reich, made Peter bury it. So this is this line is based on a true part of that book. Wow. And it's I think it's beautiful because it, the comparison there is to Reich himself what what made it special made it dangerous. So I think he, this is Peter talking using the yo-yo as a metaphor for his father saying what made it so special is also what I think we didn't mention that at the end of the story um is the elder Reich being arrested and that's where the line in verse two you look so small in their big black car mm. to be a threat to the men in power yeah. so and then later on in, in the this song, song i can't hide you from the government the big authorities coming after him exactly so in this song and in the book and in the music video we see that elder reich being taken away 
But that line in the pre-chorus about the yo-yo. Kate wrote it into the song is beautiful too, but I imagine that metaphor existed in that book, the Book of Dreams. And it's interesting to note too that the Elder Reich may have been right about that because back in the day, dating before the 30s and 40s, the fluorescence that they used in those yo-yos, that dye, actually did have some radioactive material in it. Hmm. So it may not have been bad organ energy, but he might have been right to tell him to bury it in the garden. I wonder what made Kate write a song about this and include it on this album and place it here. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, she's pushing the boundaries of what a love song is. This is this is a love song between a father and a son. And the previous was about and a mother. Just a mother sure. and a son. Yeah. And just just being inspired by literature once again. You know, she she read this book and she just couldn't quit thinking about it and inspired her to write this song, which I think is so unique to have somebody... At this point, she's in her mid-20s, but still pretty young. And starting all this with, you know, the Wuthering Heights song from when she was, you know, 19. I think she wrote that when she was younger than that. Very inspired by literature and, and fitting that art pop mm-hmm. genre that she's now considered the queen of. So that wraps up the first part of the album, Hounds of Love, which now that I look back at the the five tracks and think about what we've covered so far, they all are all about love and identity and understanding people. The first few from the perspective of a couple interacting uh, together, but then the fourth and fifth tracks about the relationship of a, a mother and a son and a and a son and a father, and perhaps how those parental influences and that love that's shared has some type of an, an effect on the understanding of love and how that transfers over to then when you meet somebody and you're trying to to figure that out. Or, or possibly another way to look at it would be that there's the first few tracks talking about somebody who is struggling to connect to somebody and understand love and then they, in their head, resort back to those those places of comfort the the parental influence and uh that experience of love that they're more familiar with that that they understand that makes more sense to them than this new type of love that they're trying to explore i think you're right about that and she covers a lot of ground with it and i think it's cool to to see her bring in what we think of romantic love and some of those understandably are the songs that became radio hits but these did too the Cloud Busting and Big Sky and other ones that have themes that are a little bit different than what you might expect for a love song also became radio hits for her to be able to push those boundaries of what a pop song's about but still make it catchy enough to be accessible, I think is something special about Kate's ability. So do you want to introduce the second half of the album and move on to that part? Yeah, sure. Let's do that. So the second half of the record is called The Ninth Wave, as I mentioned at the beginning. Kate originally thought of this as being a film. I think she always wanted to make this as a, into a film. Wasn't ever able to do so. 
but the second half is based on an Alfred Tennyson poem from The Coming of Arthur, where it says, Wave after wave, each mightier than the last, till last a ninth one, gathering half the deep and full the forces, slowly rose and plunged roaring, and all the wave was in flame. Kate had said, this album is really two separate sides for me. Each side had a title. The first was Hounds of Love, that five separate songs, individual, but in the same way, all linked because of the forms of love. The second side is called The Ninth Wave and is a conceptual side consisting of seven tracks that are linked together. As she said, The Ninth Wave was a film. That's how I thought of it. It's the idea of this person being in the water. How they've got there, we don't know. But the idea is that they've been on a ship and they've been washed over the side, so they're alone in the water. And I find that horrific imagery, the thought of being completely alone in all this water. They're completely alone at the mercy of their imagination. Kathan says, It becomes increasingly difficult for me to talk about the content of the songs. I'm not sure why. Maybe it's because the more I go on, the more I feel it's for the songs to say than for me. So with that, let's flip the record over. We'll listen to song six. This track is called Dream of Sheep. like this opening track to the second half of the album. It highlights Kate's vocals. It has a, a real Broadway feel to it to some degree. I love the piano and uh, the, you know, the elegant nature of the music overall. Broadway is a good description. There's a lot of songs that you could see them on a stage saying, and I agree with you, this one stands out the most to me that way. I, I feel like I can actually see somebody like walking on the stage you know, being the only one out there under a spotlight, just the minimalist work of the instrumentation with that piano. I, this one does really have a, like a, a uh, Broadway or a, a stage-like feel to it. Believe it or not, this was the second song written for this album. So this was written right after the first track, Running Up That Hill. That's interesting. It's got, as you mentioned, that piano the gentle guitar at the end and then Kate's voice is just about all you have except you have those voice samples on this song yeah the one I I couldn't make out what that guy was saying in the back it was kind of slow and jumbled one of the things you hear is a Coast Guard radio broadcast listing sea areas and regions surrounding the British Isles And then the second clip you hear is a female voice saying, come here with me now. Come here with me. That second clip is actually Kate's actual mother. That's her actual voice oh, cool. on this song. I didn't know that. K 
Kate describes it this way. She said, when I was little, I'd have a bad dream. I'd go into my parents' bedroom around to my mother's side of the bed and she'd be asleep and I wouldn't want to wake her. So I'd stand there and wait for her to sense my presence and wake up. And she always did. And within minutes, and sometimes I'd frighten her. I'd say I had a bad dream and she'd lift the bedclothes and say something like, come here with me now. And Kate always remembered that. And I think maybe she thought of that as being maybe the most comforting thing that she could put in this song, thinking about this woman lost at sea. I like the metaphor in the chorus, if they find me racing white horses, they'll not take me for a buoy. The white horses referring to the, the white caps on the waves. That was cool imagery. It is cool imagery. The whole thought of this song is this person lost just trying not to fall asleep and being afraid that if she fell asleep and someone came to rescue her, that she wouldn't be able to call out and get their attention. But like you said in the chorus, she's bargaining with herself, essentially saying, well, if, if they find me racing white horses, they see me trapped in these waves, they're not going to think I'm just a buoy. So let me go to sleep. I'm not sure if it's her accent or I pronounced the word wrong, but it really sounds like she says boy. If I wouldn't have read the lyrics. It does. It I does. Yes, I would have wondered what accent. she was talking about. They'll not take me for a boy. I thought, is this some connection to... The first song and her trading places with with her male counterpart, her her boyfriend, and somehow still being a, a male figure in this song. But I, I had to read the lyrics to know what she was saying there as well. I think that's her accent. Yeah. And then that little light that she starts the song off, little light shining yeah. to guide them. My face is all lit up. So you can see her out in the water. That's like that automatic light that comes on on a life preserver. Oh, okay. Just illuminating her face, waiting in, in the water. And I can't remember if I picked up on that from listening and reading the words, or there's a music video that I had sent you, which is actually from her 2014 performance, where you see her in the water with that little light on the life preserver illuminating her face. And that little light comes up in, in future songs as well. So that's a little key point to remember as we go into tracks coming up here. Lyrically, this might be the shortest song. I'm not sure if it is in length, but not quite as extensive as yeah. the previous tracks. She packs a lot in, in not a lot of lyrics. We talked about that little light illuminating her face, the waves personified by the racing white horses, the voice of her mother... And then in verse 2, she's talking about wishing that she had her radio, where if she did, she could tune into some friendly voices and forget of, about all this, talking about stupid things. She says, if I, could, if I could distract myself, then I wouldn't be so afraid. she can't be left to her imagination because that would lead to some type of fear i imagine 
Exactly. Yeah. Kate had said that this is one of the scariest things she could imagine is somebody just out lost at sea with only their imagination. So that radio to distract this person, keep them sane. So let me be weak. Let me sleep and just float and wait for somebody to come save her instead of panicking and understanding what's really happening in the situation and letting all those fear thoughts sink in. Well, it's a very pretty song. So let's move on to track seven. And the second song on the ninth wave is called Under Ice. It's wonderful. So this song sees the narrator from that first song of the ninth wave who has now fallen asleep in the ocean and she's dreaming or maybe hallucinating about skating alone over this frozen river. And just like that isolation that she's experiencing in real life, she is alone here on the river as she's skating. At first, I didn't know why the song was titled Under Ice. I understand it now after going through the whole song and seeing the part about her essentially seeing herself under the ice, realizing that her skating on the ice is part of the dream. And the dream person realizes that the real person is sleeping and dreaming, which is kind of a crazy thing to wrap your head around in the first place. But initially I thought, you know, is she saying under ice, like under a spell, but under under the, the powers of, of the ice, like the ice is doing something to her. Yeah, that part's really alarming at the end where she suddenly sees something moving under the ice and then preceding that, it's like this imagery of the carving, spitting, silver heels, little lines. I like all those words because they're perfect little phrases about what it would look like if somebody was ice skating. So little lines, you're carving these little lines. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Splitting ice, silver heels, carving. picture it 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 definitely feels like it's somebody that's alone you just hear that the lyrics to the song are just very short snippets of phrases painting the picture of this person moving along the ice and then yeah very very haunting at the end she suddenly sees something moving under the ice she looks closer and she realizes in fact it is her so the last words of the song are it's me someone help them It almost gives you chills a little bit Mm -hmm. at the end of the song. Yeah, it does. What I can't understand is how she's moving around if she's under the ice and how she got there in the first place. If that's the real person, how do you fall into water and be under it long enough for the temperature to change for it to freeze and now you're there but you're moving around and your dreamlike self who's skating around sees you and now is trying to wake you up. That's a bit out there. It's out there. I, I think that's the only way to put it. I, I think if we try to bend our mind around too much, we're going to find ourselves somewhere where we really can't <laughs> get back from because I, I think this is 
Kate Bush being Kate Bush. This is this is metaphor and layered imagery, and I don't I don't think it's all going to make complete sense. But it fits this whole like hallucination dream world that she's created with the ninth wave. And this song kind of stands alone a little bit. It's like we said, kind of a hallucination that this person that in the previous song is having after having fallen asleep. But as we'll see in future songs coming up here, it's a little bit more chronological. This one just sort of stands alone as this isolated hallucination that this character is having. You think anyone's ever done a figure skating routine to this song? You could totally see it. Yeah. It would be intense. Yeah, that's a good question. It would be very that's intense. That's a good question. Dun, dun, dun. You know, dun, dun, dun. Yeah. Dun, 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 Totally. Dun, dun. It's <laughs> funny you should say that because I think there's a lot of songs that you could see being choreographed, you know, ice skating or dancing oh, songs. Yeah. A lot of, yeah, a lot of these songs it has that yeah. that climactic Broadway suspenseful song. A lot, of, a lot of the songs have components of that or the entire song where it, it, it really draws you in. Yeah, very theatrical. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah like like a yeah. good like a good musical that that knows how to how to paint that scene with the sounds and really draw you in as a viewer. She does that a lot in these songs. She really does. At the end, are you familiar with binaural beats? Binaural beats. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Binaural beats. Binaural, I am. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So the the music at the end really reminded me of that at the end of the song. Um, when there's kind of those two beats that are sort of echoing. I don't know if technically it, it classifies. I had to to look up the definition of that. It's when you hear two tones, one in each ear, and they're slightly different in frequency, but your brain processes it at a, a different frequency, essentially, I think. I think you've got it right. Yeah, I, I just I had that, had that experience because I've listened to some binaural beats in the past uh, for relaxation purposes they they say if you listen to the right ones you can you can fall into kind of a a trance state or get some type of a natural high from the music so i've been intrigued by that in the past and i've listened and uh that ending to the song reminded me of that i'll have to listen back for that i'm not sure if i'm remembering that part i'm not sure if that was intentional or not but it just made me think or reminded me of some times that i've listened to the the binaural beats and that the the objective of that is to almost hypnotize you into a, an out-of-body kind of experience. And if that was intentional for her to, to throw that in there and how it related to the, the hallucinations that the character was having. That's a good question. I have to do some, I'd have to do some research. Yeah, to I didn't dig into, into it, that. but I just wanted to make yeah. a comment. Let's go back and yeah. check that out for sure. But yeah, let's move on uh, to the next track. As, as you said, um, this one is a little intense and uh, difficult to digest and, and dissect as well track eight is titled waking the witch
said it well, this, there's a lot to unpack with this one. This is the third track of the Ninth Wave, and it's the first in a series of three songs that depict hallucinations of that freezing woman in the middle of the ocean. And the three songs are chronological, so they go past, present, and future, of course. So this one is starting in the past. So are we supposed to think that the person who was dreaming in the previous track, Under Ice, is now awake and cognizant of what's going on, but hallucinating because of the catastrophe of being stuck in this freezing cold water? Yeah, I don't know how you differentiate you know, asleep and hallucinating, but she's she's not in her normal state. This this is a hallucinogenic state. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for the song, whether she's awake during it or well, not. Well, you're another question. You're awake when you hallucinate. Yeah, that would be the difference, I think. In a dream state, you're completely unconscious. When you're hallucinating, you're there and you can sense things and uh, you're present, but reality is distorted. So, for context, I'm not really sure, but I guess maybe there's not supposed to be some literal explanation there's obviously a lot of fantasy things that are not real this song is loosely based on a book as well so back to her drawing influence from literature a book called the witch of blackbird pond the book was written from the perspective of someone observing a salem like witch trial but the song is written from the perspective of someone actually being tried the multiple voices at the beginning that keep saying wake up in different ways, these are actually Kate's friends and family members, including her mother again, both of her brothers, a friend of hers, and actor Robbie Coltrane, who is best known now as Hagrid from Harry Potter. That's the third voice. Wake up. Must wake up. Wake up. Wake up, man. Wake up, child. Pay attention. Come on. Wake up. Wake up, love. And the voices are meant to be her subconscious trying to keep her awake and alive. So these are the people that actually care about her in real life, Kate Bush, but supposed to be people that care about this character. It's difficult to follow the the, the storyline of the character with the, the metaphors of being trapped under the ice and skating and the, the dream state versus hallucinating and all that. But then also there's real historical context of the Salem witch trials that's thrown into this song. It's kind of confusing because you could, you could take the song out of the album not knowing anything around it, research it and see that it's loosely based on the Salem witch trials and come up with a whole another explanation. But if you lump it into the three dream states, past, present, future, or hallucinations of this person who's trapped under the water, it's all over the place. It's, you know, I don't see the connection. I'm not understanding, you know, or maybe there's not supposed to be. Yeah, I think, I think it's loose. I mean, she, she gets a little bit of artistic freedom here when she's talking about hallucinations so you know the underlying story is a simple one it's this woman that's lost at sea and she's trying to stay awake so that she can call for help if somebody were to come rescue her that part's simple but then Kate decides to make this character fall asleep and hallucinate and then during a hallucination 
man, it's all fair game from there. Whatever you want to have happen in somebody's vision. I suppose, yeah. And so starts. I think this then gives Kate freedom to draw upon some of the things that she's interested in, like some of the literature. And so for her to take a simple story as the backbone and then layer in some of these things that are important to her gives her that artistic freedom to really paint that palette broadly. Or maybe maybe the connection is um, supposed to be another horrific experience comparing what it would be like to be a witch on trial during the Salem witch trials, which actually has a connection to the, the character here being trapped under the, the ice because uh, presumably if she can't get out, she will drown. And that's what they did with the people they thought were witches during the, the Salem witch trials. They held them underwater and if they survived, they were a witch and they killed them. And if they didn't survive, well, then they were dead. <laughs> so yes. it was kind of a silly thing either way. If you got accused right, of being a, a witch. It was a lose-lose. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess that traumatic experience of um, finding yourself all of a sudden in that situation would be similar to waking up and realizing that you're trapped under the ice in this freezing cold water and there's no way out. That's true. Yeah, there is there is a overlap between being lost at sea and, and the fear of drowning and then, of course, what had taken place during the witch trials, which actually did consist of drowning. Kate Bush was quoted saying that she was always fascinated by the concept of witch hunting and the questioning of women's intuition, thinking that it was kind of sexist behavior to be questioning that and, and for people to think somebody might be a witch just mm -hmm. based on somebody's intuition. What's the, what's the blackbird? What's the significance of that? Yeah, the only thing I can think of is, like I said before, about this song being loosely based on that book called The Witch of Blackbird Pond. Oh, okay. So I think that's yeah. that's where that word blackbird right. comes from. Gotcha. And she wanted to work that in somewhere. I think another thing that's really interesting about this song, and we see it in some other songs coming up too, but there's that choppy, kind of almost unrecognizable, I think they're saying, please talk to me or talk to me. Listen to me, listen to me. Those those words that are coming through kind of choppy. It was almost like a, a radio that was not tuned properly. And those voices were meant to be her subconscious trying to keep her awake and alive. The voices at the beginning telling her to wake up? Yeah, those. But then when we start to hear it be all choppy, it's like we're losing... We're losing that channel. It's like it's it's getting distorted it's fading out, bit. and then that's exactly, and that's where we're into that full-on delusion with the you know, the demonic voices and and the Salem-like imagery from there. Mm. Those Latin words I had to look up. Mm. That's spiritus yeah. sanctus. I was going to comment on that. I had to look that up. Had you it ever heard that? In the name of the Holy Spirit. Right. No, no, I I, I spent a lot of time singing in Latin, so I know oh, a little did. bit of. Okay. Latin, um, but from from high school, but I didn't know for sure what those words meant. So in the in the name of the Holy Spirit is the first one. And then the second one is Deus et del Domino Inferno, and that's translated God and Gods of the Underworld. Hmm. So basically I think she's at that point just reaching out to anyone that can help Inferno her. Inferno meaning hell? Yeah. Ah, okay. I had heard the Spiritus Sanctus before. 
Okay. It's in the movie Boondock Saints. No way. I have, I've seen that movie, actually. So anytime they kill somebody, remember, they're doing this all in the name of the church. They're going after the bad people. They're cleansing the community of all the horrible people that are breaking the laws, committing crimes, doing terrible things. So before they kill one of those people, they have them kneel down. They stand behind them and they point the two guns at angles, I believe through the back of the head so that it crosses and they basically say a prayer for this person and they finish it with inomini patri et fili spiritu sancti and that means in the name of the father the son and the holy spirit and they're basically like blessing the kill saying we're not doing this because we're bad people we're we're doing everybody we're doing society we're doing the world a favor by getting rid of the bad people interesting okay and, and that's kind of like analogous to what they thought getting rid of witches at the time. Yeah I, I, yeah, I still can't wrap my head around that. It's just crazy to think that there was a time that that made sense to people. How bizarre. And I think Kate is onto something that it happened to be women that were always, you know, it wasn't like they were drowning warlords. At least I haven't heard of the Salem warlord trials. Right, it's exactly. always the witch, It's always the women that were accused of this, their intuition being questioned as being something evil. And I wonder what, bad things were happening to people that they were blaming on these women that they thought were witches and where that idea came from in the first place. By the time it got out of control, it could almost be anything. And it, when, once these accusations of witchcraft started, if you if you read some of the history of the Salem witch trials, it, it may have started with somebody that was doing something that was a little bit unusual. And then after that was okay, it was kind of that slippery slope mentality where it didn't take much for someone to be accused of being a witch. I guess you're right. Musically, that part after the line, look who's here to see you. I did not see that coming at all. That that was totally unexpected. What follows there? Look who's here to see you. <laughs> right after look who's here to see you, it's that listen to me. Yeah, I mean, it, it really just uh, changes course and I'm not even sure how to describe it. And that's that's one thing I've been thinking here over the past few tracks or off and on as we're trying to explain some of these songs in the in the albums for for the listeners you know you'll you'll hear some of the clips that we lace in here and that'll give you a little taste of it but if you if you get nothing more from our conversation and the back and forth and confusion of trying to sort through all of this it's that this is a very deep album that uh, you can really dive into and um, kind of get lost in in all the storylines trying to figure it out and I think maybe by not uh, doing the best job of being concise with our thoughts and explanations that's also giving you a good picture of what this album is really about I think that that's a fair way to say it and I want to go back to that quote from Kate Bush when she was trying to describe the ninth wave where she said it becomes increasingly difficult for me to talk about the content of the songs. She says, I'm not sure why. Maybe it's because the more I go on, the more I feel like it's more for the songs to say than for me. And I, I think that we've talked a lot in our episodes about how once an artist creates something and releases it to the world, it really belongs to 
the listener more than it does the creator at that point. And I think for Kate, you know, she may have had a vision for these songs, maybe a tight one or even a looser one. But I think she recognizes that once she allows the listener to hear it, our interpretations do matter. We may be different than what she was originally thinking. And, and um, you can read countless blogs and websites on Kate Bush with differing opinions on what some of these songs are all about. I think that's kind of okay. I think that's part of the point for her as well and, and for art in general is to let it be what it is. So our interpretations are ours, and that doesn't necessarily mean they're wrong. Very well said. One more thing I wanted to mention on this one before we go on, back to more and more literary references, the Red Red Roses that she mentions mm, over and over mm-hmm. again in this song. Yeah, that's pretty intense. Is a reference to a sea shanty sung in the 1956 film adaptation of Moby Dick. Oh, okay. And so again, the, the drawing on the water themes and in reading the book or seeing that film and that shanty with the repeated red, red roses. Is that the part where the, the Romstein like voice comes through? <laughs> you could call it a, a Romstein like voice. Yes. It's that's the trading of, of the, uh, the red, red roses. And you then won't the, um, bleed. You won't burn, burn. <laughs> you won't bleed. Confess to me. Yeah. girl. Yes. That part definitely jumps out of nowhere. Yeah. It was just that, that deep grumbly, I don't know, intense person, like whoever, is speaking. I just I envision them with a black cloak and a in a big hood and eight feet tall, just kind of powering over you. Pretty intense. It was a little scary. I wonder if she used the fair light to create that and and whose voice that was. I don't know if that, if that was hers all warped and changed cool. or, just or somebody else's but another one of those i was not expecting that moments in this album which is pretty cool when when you texted me after you'd listened to it the first time i said something like what did you think and you said i don't know what i was expecting but it wasn't that <laughs> yeah i don't know what you were referring to specifically but in my mind that's what i, I imagined you thinking of this particular part uh-huh. yeah when you texted me that yeah i think i said something like from Broadway choir type music to a little bit of dark goth intense sounding um, songs to even an Irish folk song that we haven't gotten to yet in our in our discussion here but all over the place at the end of this song where you hear the get out of the waves get out of the water are I think voices back to reality and then the sound of that helicopter that's coming to save her that helicopter sound was actually taken from a Pink Floyd song from the wall. Kate couldn't find a better recording of a helicopter to use. And so back to her Pink Floyd connection from getting her start with David Gilmour noticing her work, she was able to ask for permission to get this helicopter song and this helicopter sound. And so that sound that you hear is actually lifted from Pink Floyd. She threw that in there. Kind of a cool nod to the guy who got her started in music. Yeah, gave her her big break. Yeah. Well, should we move on to 
God, whatever the hell track we're on. Yeah, let's do it. Let's let's move on to whatever the hell track we're on. This one is titled. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah, let's move on to track nine. This is the second song that depicts a person in a dreamlike state, and this is the present tense. Track nine is titled Watching You Without Me. Like you said, we're now in the present of these hallucinations, moving from the past and the prior song. And now the woman in the water is like a spirit visiting her loved ones in the present state that might be watching the clock and worrying about where she is. This is one of my favorite tracks. I think this is my favorite track. Let me let yeah, me put you a stamp me early on, on it. This, this is this is my favorite. Yeah. 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 I love I love the music, the opening music. Strip the lyrics away. That's that's so catchy. I mean, it, it really grabbed my attention. I like the way the sounds mesh. It's not too much. It's not super intense like some of the others. It's not too many sounds. It's just the right sounds, the perfect sounds to blend together. Lyrically, I think it's a little difficult to decipher the opening line or the first four lines that, that then get repeated uh, later. If you, if you look up the lyrics online, it'll tell you that what she's saying is, you can't hear me. You can't hear me. You can't hear what I'm saying. You can't hear what I'm saying to you. But I hear way more words than that. I hear more more syllables. I hear something more like, can you hear me? Or, or can anyone hear me? Can it, can anyone hear what I'm saying? Something to that effect. Or, or can no one hear what I'm saying? Can Is there anyone to hear what I'm saying? Or something. It just sounds like way more than what, what uh, the lyrics read online. So I'm not sure what you think, but yeah, I'll have to listen for that. I, I really wasn't noticing that. I think I heard vocalizations. I thought they were more just kind of background, you know, vocalizing that she was doing and not words, but maybe I'm missing something there. And I'm not sure who she'd be talking to if she's saying, you can't hear me. It makes more sense for somebody to be hallucinating or dreaming that's kind of lost and stuck, needing help, saying, can you hear me? Is there anybody out there who can hear me? Yeah, I mean, I think this one is, she's she's supposed to be in that moment as a spirit and almost like seeing her. It's almost like a, a Christmas carol, you know, the, the ghost of Christmas present where Ebenezer Scrooge is taken to the present moment and seeing like, you know, tiny Tim and stuff and what's actually going on. And so I think it's fitting to say, you can't hear me. I think it's just setting the stage in the lyrics to say like, okay, we, this spirit of this woman is now amongst people that are worrying about her and she she can't be heard. So we're that statement's being made by the by Kate that this person is not being able to be heard. I'll probably text Kate tomorrow and check on that. You've got Kate's personal number? Yeah. You don't? Damn it. <laughs> Sorry, man. I think I did tell you I, I'm I found myself I'm kinda I think I'm kind of in love with Kate Bush after this, so I'm a little how has that not come up yet? Yeah, that's like the only thing we've been talking about over the past few weeks is how much you wish you had a time machine. And It's bad timing because I, I just just had my first child, and <laughs> so I, it's tough to break to my wife at this point, but it is what it is. Well, in line with the album, it could be some 
hallucination or dreamlike fantasy state <laughs> where maybe, maybe it happens. You just need to find yourself a, a frozen lake and who knows where your mind might go. Maybe Kate will show up on the ice skating around. Maybe maybe she's like cryogenically suspended back there and, and she's still 26. Hey, 26 or 66 or whatever she is, she still looks pretty darn good. That's she's, true. She's That's kept true. herself looking great. Let's leave it at that. Yep. I wanted to comment on what you were describing with those sounds at the beginning too because they sounded to me like clocks ticking. did what do you think they're playing what do you think those instruments are i once again imagine that it's something that she created with her fair light but it sounds like it's supposed to be synthesizing some sort of like xylophone mm, instrument okay i liked it oh or maybe is it called a marimba i don't know you're gonna ask me how i know what a marimba is right how do you know what a mar- marimba, <laughs> marimba like, is where's this guy pulling this out of left field I I used to date a girl who played marimba, and she was she was really good. She had her own that she would rent, and would play it all the time. And it sounded beautiful. It it sounded like a more elegant xylophone. I'm looking at pictures though. I could I could see this instrument as as yeah, being so it similar to what I was envisioning. Yeah, it has these big, I don't know what you call them, pipes, kind of like a like mm-hmm. a piano or an organ that come down. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. But uh, yes, um, I think that might be what it is. I'm not sure, but it has that that real deep, full, vibrating sound to it. So I bet that's part of it. Yeah, I bet it is. Before we move on from this song, the that distortion of the voice is similar to what we heard in the previous song, "The Waking the Witch," where you hear kind of those voices cutting in. To me, it was almost implying that. She was maybe losing this hallucinogenic state, or she was starting to drift back into her present, you know, the, the real place she was out into the ocean. Or maybe it was like her voice trying to cut through to these people that were up waiting to wonder where she was. But again, that kind of clipping, almost like the radio that wasn't dialed in correctly. We hear that on this song too. Yeah, that makes me think of something that maybe we haven't talked about enough on this album yet is the way the the lyrics, the stories that are being told pair well with the music, where the music really enhances the lyrics. We've talked a lot about how great artists can create the emotions that they're going for through the lyrics and the accompanying music at the same time and that that in tandem is what really gives you that great experience as a listener and i think she does that with a lot of the sounds especially this song she does another thing that we haven't done a great job talking about up to this point we mentioned it briefly at the beginning but her decision to as to when to use instrumentation or sort of synthesized instrumentation that's a little bit more cold and others that are a little bit more organic and warm. I meant to mention that on cloud busting with those violin sounds that come in on the chorus of the Every Time It Rains, and then, of course, the more cold sound 
of that whatever it is xylophone or or instrument here um marimba what sounded kind of yeah the marimba what sounded kind of like like the pipes the steam from um mother stands for comfort you know I, i think all of those songs really depict how she's doing a good job of using that stark difference between the almost kind of clinical sound of the synthesizer which was really popular in the 80s and those more organic sounds of the instruments that you might have heard more in the 60s and 70s so cool that she's blending those things together and I think that she does it strategically you know there's times where she wants it to feel a little bit more human and personal and times where she wants it to feel a bit more mechanical and from this song musically we take a a big turn heading into the next track this is that Irish song that I that I mentioned made its way onto this album. Track ten is titled Jig of Life. Hello, old lady. I know your face well. I know it well. She says, sitting in your mirror now. Is the place where the crossroads meet? Will you look into the future? Never, never say goodbye. So in this, the third of those three hallucinations, the drowning woman is confronted by her future self who tries to convince her to fight for their shared life. So in this one, we have the future self of the woman coming back and saying, hang on, you can't let go. I've got a whole life. I've got kids. I've got memories. Don't die. Stay awake. So that dance of life between this present person floating in the water and her future self coming mm-hmm. to give her this message. Yeah, that's good advice. Don't die. Stay awake. Great advice. Don't die. But at the beginning, she says, hello, old lady. I know your face well. I know it well. So maybe a reference to this woman flo- floating in the water, immediately recognizing her future self coming to visit her. Has Kate and anything that you've seen allude to her inspirations that led to some of these bizarre ideas i mean we've had some historical context in the songs that's a little bit more obvious as to how that could have made its way how she could have heard about that and wanted to include it in a song but the hallucinations the idea of wanting to make a deal with god to trade places with the opposite sex to this dreamlike state of looking at you know your your past and then the present and the future, how your future self can be talking to you. And then even back to the song before these hallucinations in this set of three that we've been talking about where the person is figure skating and then they see themselves under the water and they realize that's the person who's actually dreaming. All of this is very esoteric and makes me think that it would require some type of enhancement for for somebody's thoughts to go into all these places i mean unless they read a lot of literature or studied fantasy i mean these are all thoughts that a normal person like myself probably wouldn't come across so 
Did you see anything about, you know, how, how she was influenced to go down some of these crazy paths in the songs? This is just Kate. I, I think um, we might be biased to think based on some of the other albums that we've covered. You're thinking about Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young's Deja Vu. And then, of course, Brian Wilson on Pet Sounds, that there was a lot of drug influence and, and mind-altering places yeah, I mean, that might have brought in these they sound thoughts. like the experiences that people on acid would describe having. Right. But I, but no, I mean, I think about how Kate wrote so, so many of the songs, maybe not on this album specifically, uh, not on this album specifically, but on some of her first, her first album and, and her earliest work when she's, you know, 13 years old. And I, I think she's just influenced and, and um, inspired by a lot of the literature that she reads. And I think she's just kind of a natural dreamer and storyteller. Do you know if a lot of her other albums are similar in the sense of being very cerebral and connecting a lot of historical context, but also being a little abstract like this? Or does Hounds of Love stand out in her discography as being the weird album? So I would say that the one prior to this is probably the one that stands out the most as being the weird album, the the dreaming, the one that she just referred to as the She's Gone Mad album. That one was less accessible. So this one, I would say the second half here, the, the ninth wave, not super accessible. The Dreamy is almost more like a complete album of songs like that and no running up that hill, no big sky. So she's got a lot of tools and, and extensions of who she is. She's had albums that are a lot more like those hits. And then albums like The Dreamy that I think are a lot more like the esoteric artistic side and less accessible so she can draw on a lot of different places i'm very impressed especially considering a, a lot of this was being constructed i mean her idea of of being a musician and the type of music that she wanted to create the songs the lyrics all kind of started through teenage development years and she had already written a, a ton of tracks I mean, how old was she when she released this album I don't know if we mentioned that. I want to say 26. I'd have to do the math there, but I think I think she would have been 26. 19 when she released her first one. This was her fifth. So she put out a, right. a ton of music. Obviously, to generate that many songs, she's creative and, and just has a, a natural gift for telling stories and putting it into a song. But be curious to be able to interview her and, and ask some of these questions about... You know, this, this song's kind of kind of crazy. You know, what's this all about? <laughs> Just um, be blunt about it. Yeah, I'm surprised you didn't text her to ask her some of those questions. Oh, yeah, I, I will. I will tomorrow. I just, Sounds yeah. We just became friends recently, so maybe I could get her on the podcast. Now you're just rubbing it in my face. <laughs> Let's go on to the next song. <laughs> I'm making all that up, guys. I'm nowhere cool enough to be a friend of Kate Bush's. You don't say. <laughs> Tra track 11 is called Hello Earth. <laughs>
This is another really elegant, pretty song. My favorite part of the entire song is that pre-chorus. The music transitions, the beat changes a little bit, and it goes into that line. I get out of my car, step into the night. Really picks up from there. this is my favorite of the slow songs or the dream of sheep but i might say this one i like just a little bit better kate had said hello earth is a very difficult track to write because it was in some ways too big for me she says she says i ended up with a song that had two huge great holes in the chorus where the drums stop and everything stop and people would say to me what's going to happen in these choruses we had the whole song, it was all there, but these huge great holes in the choruses, and I knew I wanted to put something in there. And I had this idea to put vocal piece in there that was this traditional tune that I'd heard used in the film Nosferatu. So again, she's referencing films as influence. And really everything I came up with, it was just rubbish, really compared to what this piece was saying. So we did some research to find out if it was possible to use it, and it was. So that's what we did. We re-recorded the piece, and I kind of made up words that sounded like what I could hear was happening on the original, and suddenly there was these beautiful voices in these chorus that had just been like two black holes. The beginning of the song has composite samples of communication between the space shuttle Columbia on the maiden mission STS-1 in April of 1981, starting the song. I get the sense that the drowning woman here is close to dying. Maybe she's like separated from her body almost. That line where she says, with just one hand held high, I could blot you out of sight. Peekaboo little earth. Almost like she's like separated from herself, as that quote described, looking down on that little dot that is them. Yeah, I like that. There was another part of the music that was really cool. Did, did you pick up on that men's choir that was in there? That was kind of cool. I think that was the first appearance of that. All the other times there'd been a a choir, it sounded more like a full choir. Yes, it, it was a that that choral section was performed by the Richard Hickok singers, taken from the Gregorian folk song called Zincaro. Okay, cool. I especially liked the person singing low bass when they, they held that note. It seemed like forever if you caught that in the background. really really low almost in the back of the throat just vibrating i really appreciated that with choir background and understanding how difficult it is to mesh all those parts that was a cool sound the words at the outro are interesting i guess they're german and i'm not gonna be able to say them very well t for t for i'm not gonna try to pronounce the rest of it but i guess that's german for deeper deeper somewhere in the depth there is light and I thought that was really interesting considering this woman being lost in the deep sea, but there's that little light that she is referenced in the Dream of Sheep song yeah. at the beginning. Mm -hmm. So somewhere in the depth there is light. Why she chose to pick German words 
to say that at the end, I'm not sure. Well, we are down to one final track. Last track of the album is track 12 called The Morning Fog. that deep twangy guitar part coupled with the lighter acoustic line that's a really pleasant blend what did you make of the lyrics and the message wrapping up this album we've unpacked a lot up to this point what does kate leave us with here I got the impression at the end of this song that this person is appreciating, after going through this near-death experience, all of the things that make life important. So that morning fog is maybe something that's lifting and clearing away, and, and this person is now able to see what life really is after having gone through this life-changing near-death experience. It ends by saying, I'll, I'll kiss my mother, I'll tell my father... I'll tell my loved ones, my brother, how much I love them. And I think it, the message of this song is just supposed to be that sometimes it takes something tragic or near tragic to appreciate some of the things that we have in life. And what a roller coaster ride from start to finish. I, I mentioned I, I felt like the first few songs on Hounds of Love, the very beginning of, of the album, part one, were about young love, worrying about some things that probably aren't that important, then transitioning to the relationship with parents to then, as you mentioned, something tragic, a lot of difficult, dark, trying times, being stuck underwater, under the ice, hallucinating, dreamlike states, the witch trials that we mentioned, and, and some other more dark experiences to now the, the morning fog coming out from a near-death experience and maybe appreciating the, the simplicity of life at the end here. Do you, you think there was supposed to be a general concept or story that was told chronologically from the first track to the 12th? Or are there separate messages in the, the two parts, Hounds of Love versus Ninth Wave, that we're supposed to treat separately? Or does it all blend together and have a, a deeper meaning or overarching theme? I think we're really supposed to view those two as separate for the most part. I think the ninth wave is supposed to be a complete thought, as is Hounds of Love, maybe not quite so much one complete thought, but the the theme of it anyway being different parts of love, different aspects of love. But I do think those two things are supposed to be separate, where the ninth wave is really the story from beginning to end. You know, the ending of this story to be that, I guess maybe something that does tie a little bit of, of a bow around it all. Love is what really does matter. And, and at the end, this person survives and it's got this appreciation for life. But the thing that she repeats over and over at the end is, you know, again, I'll tell my mother, I'll tell my father, I'll tell my loved ones how much I love them. So if at the beginning of the album, 
the hounds of love was talking about different types of love, some of it a little bit more twisted than others. And the second part being about this person lost at sea. I do think they're supposed to be separate, but I guess you could kind of tie a little bow on the end with this song, even though it's really more of a stamp to being the end of the ninth wave, as somewhat relating back to the themes of that first half hounds of love being just love itself being the most important part. And I think that might be what we're supposed to take. That's that's a good interpretation. I like that. We had talked earlier about, again, that quote about Kate saying, you know, the more I talk about what the ninth wave is about, the more I think I should probably just, I'm paraphrasing now, but stop talking because I think it's for the songs to say for themselves. I thought this was really interesting. I, I saw that Kate had stated that the character in this ninth wave is supposed to live. So in in Kate's mind, this character does not die. But despite that, f- fans of Kate Bush have argued, regardless of Kate stating that she lives, that she does die. And to them, this song is about reincarnation and rebirth and the lessons regained from previous lives. So I thought, what a concept of what we've talked about before, about once the art is released, that it belongs to the listener more than the artist, where even when the artist is saying, this is what I meant this song to mean, this is what I meant the ending to be to this story, the fans saying, not not to us. To us, this yeah. person died, and this is a different message. And I think that's okay. Even, even with Kate saying something different, I think if uh, these fans feel it, they get a different message or a different moral because of that that speaks to them better. I, I kind of think that Kate would be okay with that. Yeah, and in a, in a way, reincarnation or rebirth is not dying. I mean, it's not necessarily surviving. I guess it's implying that, that you die and you come back. But to some people, uh, especially uh, some some faith, some religion, it's a normal process of life to have multiple lives and learn from your past and that you don't ever truly die or leave this uh, place completely until you until you've fulfilled your life uh, mission through your spirits or multiple lives your 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 person uh, lives on so maybe the fans are saying sort of the same that the idea of this character one way or another lives to see another day and moves on in a different form whether that's the actual body and a new mind learning from those experiences or a true reincarnation rebirth type situation where that spirit or mind is kept alive in a new body form. Did you have a vision one way or the other on this? I mean, I'm somebody that's listened to this album more than you. And I think I did a little bit more digging to uncover some of what these songs were about. And to be completely frank, I didn't even know about the ninth wave, even though I've owned this album forever. I've, I've just listened to and enjoyed the music, but for you, having listened to this really for the first time in these last several weeks, did you feel like this ended on this character making it out, or did you have a thought one way or the other? I'm not sure if I had much of a thought on it. I think your notes and research has, has helped guide my understanding of the album, but I'm I'm still mostly in listener enjoying the music mode, I think, because it's still new enough to me that when I'm when I'm listening, I'm getting wrapped up in the music. Now, now that I have the context and we've gone through and done our research and talked about all the different storylines, it'll probably stick with me and I'll be thinking about it more when I listen. But I'll, I'll be the first to admit that I did not dive as deeply into uh, the lyrics as I 
typically do. And one of the reasons is that I was I was so drawn to the music, all the different sounds that I was really enjoying that that musical experience of getting lost in the music and how it was making me feel without really dissecting the the lyrics. And and having done that now, I think I'll go back with a little different perspective and appreciation for it. Well, in fairness to you, I've been listening to this album for you know, not a ton of time compared to how long it's existed. I, I probably started listening to Kate Bush maybe, I don't know, six, seven years ago, something like that. And I really hadn't dived real deep into the lyrics and themes of this album myself. I It's such an enjoyable album to listen to. And again, it's so ahead of its time in terms of sound that I thought she was cutting edge and, and innovative and unique and intelligent just based on that just you know when i pick this album for you to listen to and for our deep dive this time i thought you're going to be blown away that this is a 1985 album that this woman is creating this music that's so ahead of its time and that you're going to hear elements of some of these other artists that you like in and that was really all aside from the lyrical content and and the literary narratives i i just thought of her as a unique artistic person musically I knew she was intelligent and I knew the lyrics were good but I didn't really think of that element of it so much even myself until we started unpacking it together and so songs like cloud busting for me took on a whole new meaning and and um, became you know probably my favorite song on the album whereas something like running up that hill which I still love was probably what drew me in initially when I started listening to Kate Bush so I may be one step ahead of you but only in the last few weeks myself yeah, it was a really fun listening experience. Something unique and new. I, I don't think I can compare it to much else that I've listened to. I don't know. I mean, is there a, a decent comparison? Is there somebody that inspired Kate Bush that you could say she's a product of X, Y, and Z? Or is it fairly organic and unique? Yeah, I mean, when you listen to this, I think she sounds like a lot of things that you've heard after her. Yeah. Right. In in terms of listening to her and figuring out what she might have drawn on in terms of her own influence, I think that's harder. I really do think that she's groundbreaking in terms of being one of that, that art pop genre in this particular stage and, and being a female artist at that time, too, and being an, an attractive one. I think we really jokingly mentioned that before, but I think that there is something to that, to, to have somebody this talented vocally and you know the, her dancing skills and as pretty as she was for people to try to start formulating what kind of an artist she was and and somebody that's trying to market her sound and get her out there i think people probably had to do a 180 in terms of kind of going okay i think i'm misjudging what this person's all about especially being as young as she was when she started Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think it probably took a while and, and maybe those two years of being on retainer when she first got signed yeah, right, yeah. might have been in, in a blessing in disguise in some ways for people to kind of realize that there's a lot more to her once we do start marketing this artist. Right. It's not going to be, you know, it's not going to be what it looks yeah. like on the surface. Yeah, here. If, you, if you knew nothing about Kate Bush and her music and somebody handed you this album cover and some photos of her and said, this is a female pop artist from the 80s what do you expect to hear describe the the music that you know you're probably about to listen to here you'd probably be way off i I think you're exactly right having having listened to it though and and knowing her in this album 
What are your What are your overall uh, impressions? I'll I'll start with a, a specific question. I mentioned uh, when we first uh, were getting started here on this podcast that the one word that I would use to describe this album, if I had to only use one word, would be entertaining, because I think that that encompasses my experience. That captures my experience in in the best way. What's the one word if you had to use only one word to describe Kate Bush Hounds of Love album? What would that be? And then expand on your your overall impressions or any any lasting remarks you want to make about what this album means to you, why you picked it, and uh, anything else you want to include. And the one word is hard. I think maybe what comes to mind first is for one word is innovative, but it's really hard for me to, to land on one. But I think that word might encompass mostly what she is, is somebody that's doing her own thing, has her own sound, and inspired so many people after her. And you can hear her influence, and and it doesn't take long to read her influence on artists that we are listening to today. In fact, one of the ones I had mentioned earlier was an artist called Bat for Lashes, which is still one of my favorite artists. Natasha Khan is, is the name of the the singer for that band. And I listened, started listening to her before Kate Bush and talked about how she was one of my favorite musicians. And then now I think when I listen to her, it's hard for me to just not hear Kate Bush. I, I think she's almost a carbon copy. I still think she's great, but I, I really have to give it to Kate Bush in terms of the influence. And Natasha Khan would say just as much. And there's countless artists that would admit that as well. So I think it was important for, one of the reasons I wanted to pick this album is I think it was important for us, given some of the artists that we've talked about already, and there's a lot more. We're living in a time right now where I think the synthesized, you know, some of that synthesizer and some of the music that's coming out today is making use of some of the same elements that Kate started. And without knowing it, we've been listening to Kate's influence since we started this podcast in certain ways. And so educating you and then myself to a certain extent on really who she was I think is important as we move forward awesome yeah this was this was a little bit of a, a challenge for me I was you know really intrigued by the music and then we started diving into some of the some of the stories and the multiple stories within the same song and the, and the connections it's really a lot to unpack it's a lot to to take in as a listener it's a it's a fun experience so for, for any of you tuning in, you know, if, if you manage to stick with us till the end here, definitely give it a listen. I feel like this is an album that you can listen to in so many different contexts. Like, I think it's, you know, sometimes we talk about how certain albums need to be listened to while you're not doing anything else with complete attention to the music. So you can dissect the lyrics and you can understand the message and really appreciate it. You can certainly do that with this album, but I don't know if it's required. I don't think you have to do that for this one. I think if you want to just throw on some headphones and have a fun musical experience, whether you're cleaning the house or going for a walk or you're on a drive, you don't have to pick up on all the lyrics and, and understand all the all the background and history because the music alone is is fascinating and entertaining. It's It's going to be a great experience. It's going to draw you in from start to finish and... I think that's okay too. This is one of those where I, I wouldn't necessarily encourage somebody, oh, you got to go back and you got to dive into all the all the stories and you got to understand the context and all that. I think on some albums you really do to have to appreciate the music, but I'm not sure if you have to on this one. I mean, it's it's one more element, but 
the music alone, it stands by itself as being a masterpiece without the lyrical genius and the, the ability to, to work in all those historical contexts. Yeah, I'd agree. I think you can get something out of it without doing that. And then I would encourage somebody to do that after as well. You know, this there would be some where I'd say, you know, you take it or leave it. This one, I think you should experience without diving in and then dive in too, because I think there's another layer as well as somebody that's been listening to this one for half a decade or more here. I, I've appreciated it more now that I've done that. And it was already one of my favorite albums without having done that. So to what you're saying, that music stands alone. <laughs> but I do want to say at the very end, do the deep dive too, because there is, there's another level to it that I think you'll appreciate. And that's what I've done in the last few weeks myself. Yeah, definitely. It helps, helps you appreciate it even more. Agreed. All right. Well, we'll wrap up for now. We'll be to a new album, a 2021 album next. We'll keep that one a surprise for now. Otherwise, go listen to a great album. Cheers. Oh, wait, I'm supposed to say something funky. Do you have something funky? Uh, Spiritus Sanctus. <laughs> no. no, that's kind of dumb. If you are enjoying listening to Album Divers, you can support our podcast by subscribing, reviewing, and sharing it with someone else that appreciates great music. Follow and connect with us on Facebook and Instagram at Album Divers. We'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback about our take on an album that you already loved or had never heard before. Do you have an album you want us to dive into? Email us at albumdiverspodcast at gmail.com and we'll consider adding it to our queue for a future episode. Thanks again for joining us. We hope you never stop discovering music that moves you to dive deeper. Until next time. <laughs>